everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co-host for today. Hi, I'm Joshua White. For today's episode, we have with us Russell Cropanzano from the University of Colorado. While Russell would agree that he's not necessarily an entrepreneurship scholar, he is very well known, especially in the organizational behavior and psychology area for his work on organizational justice, employment relationships, and employee mental health. So since this episode is about well-being and mental health, given that it's season two, we thought he would be a great guest. Specifically, this episode focuses on co-author relationships. And if you take a quick look at Russell's Google Scholar page, you will see that he has well over 60,000 citations and hundreds and hundreds of papers published in top journals. He's also won awards like Best Paper Awards or uh, Award Fellow for the Academy of Management. So he knows a lot about working with multiple people and managing those relationships. So we're really excited to have him here today and to see what advice he has to offer us. So since this season is all about well-being, this season's icebreaker question is, if you could be on a reality TV show, what reality TV show would you be on? Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm going to give you um, a serious answer. I don't know any reality TV shows. I don't know a single one. I don't watch any reality TV at all. I guess I'd be on Jersey Shores because I'm Italian and I'd probably fit in. Um, I would say The Sopranos, but I don't think that was actually a reality show. I like it. That's a good answer. Okay, let, what if, is there a TV show that wasn't reality TV, just any TV show you ever wanted to be on? I'll tell you which one. I mean, if, I, if it was a real show, if it was a real show, Cowboy Bebop, the, the anime version. The, the, the live version came out, and I'm afraid to watch it because it looks really bad, but the, the original version is anime, and it's, it's from Japan, and it's, it's um, I, I love cyberpunk. And so it, it's kind of a cyberpunk space Western, and it's set like in the early 2070s when people live throughout the solar system and they're bounty hunters. And it has, hence the name, Bebop is the name of their ship. But as you might imagine, it has like the music is all jazz, which growing up in Louisiana, I would recognize it. And they travel around hunting criminals in the future. So that would be, that would be my ideal world. A dystopian hellscape where people live in space, listen to jazz, and fight crime. I think I would be, I would fit right in. That was not the answer I was expecting you to go with. So that was a great answer. I like to start this off too after we do the icebreaker one with a little bit of background of like your career. How did you get into academia? Kind of give us a little bit of background about you and how you got to this point of your life. I was an undergraduate and I went to LSU and um, Louisiana State University. I took an intro psych course and um, really liked the section on um, IO psychology, industrial organizational psychology. So that's what I wanted to do. Meanwhile, kind of get my act together as a student, but I got into graduate school. And it was funny because back then, this would have been the early 80s, nobody knew what an IO psychologist was. And, um, and um, I, I feel like I bought Microsoft stock, you know, because I was in this field, there's probably only um, a few hundred of us in the whole world. And then since then, of course, that was a long time ago, the field's taken off. 
Um, and that's how I got into it. I was in psychology from the first 14 years of my career as a Colorado State University. Um, when, uh, when our second child was born, my wife and I decided I should get more serious about, about earning money. I moved, I moved to a business school at that point. That's how I got here. That would have been 2002, I think, something like that. Um, and, I, and then I stayed at, I was at the University of Arizona for 10 years. And then uh, since about 2012, I've been here at Colorado. So how did you choose your topic of what you were interested in studying? Did you just know in undergrad that this was just something interesting? Is it the psychology background? Like, um, Well, now I study things different than I studied back then. Um, I got into the organizational justice research. Um, I had been, I had gone to Catholic schools from kindergarten to 12th grade, and I was really influenced in high school by the Catholic social justice movement. So, um, but I don't know why. You know, maybe I was just born this way. I tend to look at a lot of these philosophical topics through um, psychological lens. And so I, I've always had that sort of um, psychological interest in, in big philosophical topics. In terms of, um, this will surprise you probably, in terms of the stuff I, I've studied more recently, like emotion, particularly mental health and emotion, that actually came from something different. Um, and when I was an undergraduate, um, I got a job, of all things, working in an animal lab. And so um, I spent a lot of time working with the animals, but it got me interested in emotion, particularly from an evolutionary point of view. What you would see with these animals is all these very, very complex behaviors they were doing, and they were mediated emotionally. You know, and, and it hit me that a lot of the things we think of, or at least we thought of since the Enlightenment, um, as carefully thought out and as reasonable uh, are actually, we were doing them before we could even think logically, or at least logically in the sense that we would use the term in science. In science. And, um, and so it, it, it struck me how fundamental our feeling states are to us. So I got interested in that. By the way, I think a lot of our mental illness, a lot of it, I think, is normal responses to an abnormal environment. And by abnormal, I mean um, the, not the environment that we evolved in. And so the, the most common one is anxiety, right? We never get to calm down because, or it's hard for us to, because there's always a new threat. There's always a new goal. There's always a new expectation. And so we're up, 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 up. And, um, and I, think, I think that's, the, that, that's the, the kind of thing that causes anxiety or a lack of well-being or, or hostility and so on. Um, I don't think it's coincidence that crime is going up in all the, in, not all, but many major cities at a time of, of a frightening pandemic when the social structure is also breaking down. Um, and I think those things all go together. So those are the kinds of big questions that have always interested me. No, that's amazing. And honestly, that is, um, I feel like that's so useful and so relatable, um, especially with the anxiety and not being able to calm down. And definitely something that I and Ashley, and I'm sure every other PhD student in America experiences on a daily basis. Um, it's just, you know, one more goal and paper and project and test and, you know, everything like that. Um, I guess, you know, in, in your, in your work, um, what are some effective coping mechanisms that, you know, um, I mean, specifically doctoral students, but really anybody, how can people cope um, with anxiety when they're not able to calm down? Um, that, that's a good question. 
I, I never got good at it, and I'm not sure I'm good at it now. But the way we run the field for the members, it's like we put everyone in a hamster wheel and we say, run, 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 run. And, um, and, and so you get these people, like, for example, you've probably heard this term, authorship inflation, where everyone is trying to get their names on something and the prof professors put their names on things. Um, and, and what I have seen in doctoral students over the last few decades, a big evolution is they don't have time for intrinsic motivation. Um, and so they don't read things, for example, because they love them um, 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 or because they're really curious. I, um, um, I'm reading a book right now, actually it's C.S. Lewis's book, The Discarded Image. <laughs> you didn't need to know that, but it's about, it's an introduction to medieval and Renaissance literature. And, and I thought, okay, I just wanna read it, right? Cause I'm interested in that sort of thing. Students now can't read that sort of stuff. They don't have time to do it, and or, or, or maybe they do, because they've got to be getting publications all the time. Um, I noticed this change about 10 or 12 years ago when young faculty would come in and they wouldn't even refer to them as publications. They'd refer to them as hits. Like, like you know, when somebody clicks on your website or likes your website, it's a hit. It, it's not, um, these are the kinds of things I would tell my students. One. Figure out what you want to do, because there's a lot of places that you don't have to be on that rat race. And so if you, for example, really like teaching or you like schools that are more balanced between research and teaching and in business schools, there's a lot of those. Then that's what you should do, you know, and, and if you're if people don't don't agree with you, well, let them worry about that. Another thing I think you need to do, and I started doing this when I started working out about 10 years ago, you need to set daily goals and then stop. So you have to set specific hard goals and then you have to stop. And the third thing I think you need to do, and this is what I'm told, but I'm bad at it, is to celebrate your successes. So uh, one of the things we would do in graduate schools, we'd all go out together. There was a big doctoral program. Now, business school programs tend to be smaller. But, um, but somebody got a publication, we'd all go out and celebrate. And I thought that was a really good thing to do. Well, I think that's, that's very useful. And I think this episode specifically is still about well-being, but about balancing these demands on your time like you're talking about. So one of these demands that I think is really difficult, especially because not only do we see the pressure of publishing, but like you said, faculty see that. So how do you, how do you think PhD students should balance the demands that faculty are placing on them for getting out all these pubs and helping with projects versus if you want to stop at five o'clock and go work out, but you have people wanting stuff from you. How do you think they can balance those demands? I'm going to give you a faculty member's answer, which you may or may not like. The norms we have in higher ed, just like in other industries, are designed to solve certain particular problems. And so when students are asked to do something, collect data or analyze data or read certain articles, it's important that they understand why they're being asked to do that and that they do it, they not dismiss it. Okay, that's the first thing, is there needs to be some clarity on what we're trying to do. Then once you have that clarity, you have a common framework for discussion. And so then the faculty member and the student can sit together and talk about it. So for example, uh, uh, the framework will be, look, this weekend I can't do it, or I gotta leave and 
where a lot of these students are older will also have families. You know, they, have, they want to spend time with their children, for example, or their spouse. Well, that's pretty reasonable. And, and, and they need to have faculty understand that, right? And they need to discuss it in those terms and then make alternative um, um, deadlines. And those can be negotiated. And then you can meet those deadlines. One of the things that I always thought was really interesting is when I first joined the PhD program, one of our faculty members here said about how they had worked with like 75 different co-authors. Yeah, but out of all of those, there's only maybe 15 that they've worked with more than once. You've published tons of papers. You got over 60,000 citations. How do you manage these co-author relationships where you can make sure if, let's say you don't work great with someone, manage that relationship in order to ensure your own mental health is still okay? Well, that's a tough one. I would say I work with a lot of different people. And hopefully they'll say this about me, um, but uh, but I've had very very good experiences with co-authors. I've had very few negative ones, and I have had some. Um, honestly, because I've got a lot of publications and I'm in a senior place in my career, if someone gets to be a real jerk, I just scuttle the whole paper and stop working because I've got something else. I've always got something else I can work on, and so I I can work on something. There's a higher likelihood of paying out. But I think the real question is, what's the actual concern? Because I have my ways, right? We all do. And, um, and if there's a problem, the first thing I try to do is I try to think of how am I contributing to it? And so I try to, I try to temper my behavior. I try to look at how I've contributed. And I found, honestly, that usually takes care of most of the trouble right there. Um, either, and I'm not sure if it's because I have been doing something or because people appreciate that I'm willing to see their point of view. For the other ones, depends on the nature of the problem. Uh, most people, I, I tend not to fight with people very much. You know, there's different ways you can manage it. If there's a whole bunch of authors, uh, one of the other authors can do the communications. And um, if the other, a lot of times you will get somebody who's just a slacker, honestly, and I'll just work a little harder and um and fill it out that way so those are things i do you just muddle through and then you never work with the person again that's good advice it's something that probably is different for you now in your career than when you were a doc student too what advice do you have for when there is a power distance yeah that's a good question see it, it works really well for me now you're right but um but as a student it's much much more problematic and there are I, i'll tell you the truth it's like picking an advisor. Uh, I think I can say this, right? It's like getting married. You know, you, you've really got to pick, find someone that you can trust. And if you pick wrong, you need to fix that problem pretty quickly. The challenge for doctoral students is, students is that you need to pick someone who's high on both dimensions. It's most important to get published, honestly, and preferably someone who has a lot of integrity and really is, is a very caring kind of person. And it's hard to find both of those things. You get a lot of agreeable people, but it's not correlated with academic success. And so what I would suggest to students is when they come into a business school, they work with multiple faculty, and then they make their decision after having that firsthand experience. And I would, I would look at a few basic things. Is the person around, right? It seems pretty obvious, right? but a lot of faculty just aren't in the office. When you talk to the person, I would present ideas to the person and see what they say. 
You want someone who will critique your ideas. If they think everything you say is wonderful, you don't want them as your advisor because none of us have all wonderful ideas. You want them to critique the ideas, but in a certain way that's constructive. Third thing I would say is you wanna pick someone who has an ongoing program of study that you can plug into. Um, I would talk to the senior students and see what they say. I think that's important too. I would ask professors about what their philosophy is on publishing with students. But if one's a jerk to you as a student, I don't really know that there's much you can do about it, except diversify your portfolio and work with someone else. No, absolutely. I mean, Russell, I felt like you were talking directly to me or me, you know, four years ago, you know, when I started the program, um, because I came from industry, had a very similar background as what you're saying. And, um, <clears throat> and I didn't understand those norms and how, and how work is done and, and what the purpose of the goals are and things like that. And that took a lot of time for me to understand. Um, and I think that that's one of the main purposes of this podcast is to kind of open that dialogue for students and maybe students that are in smaller cohorts that don't have, you know, the support that um, larger programs have and let them know, hey, you know, it's okay to go talk to faculty about expectations and work arrangements and things like that because, um, Sometimes you think when you ask those questions, you're failing. But in reality, I think what you're, I think what you're telling us is, is these are the questions that you have to ask in order to learn the norms and to be successful in this field. Um, and so I think that encouragement is very valuable. That's a good point. You know, I can tell you what I would, what I would advise on picking a major professor, because there's two, right, there's two sets of things that are going to be stressful for you. Um, there's your immediate environment. If you're a doctoral student, there's your immediate environment and that's going to weigh on you. And then there's the long-term prospects of your career. Where are you going? Right. And um, what I've often seen in my career is the people who, who create the most immediate stress for you, depending on what kind, but the people who create the most immediate stress are often the ones that reduce the long-term stress. They're not telling me these things just to be bullies, though it may have felt that way when I was 24 or 25. Um, they're telling me these things because they've been in this business and they know they know what happens to people who don't do those things. And um, and and so what professors are often carrying in their heads, and the older they get, the more of this is failure experiences, perhaps theirs, but probably someone they cared about, like a, a, a peer in graduate school or a student early in their careers. And and so when they work with you. That's what they're trying to help you avoid. But what you need as a first-year doctoral student is, here are the things I'm doing. Here are the things in which I could involve you in. Here is a likelihood they're going to lead to a publication. And so you have to pick the person who's going to get you publications without driving you crazy. To put it real simply. I don't know. Sometimes it's out of passion. Sometimes it's out of necessity. But like, there's always this sense of like, hey, I really do want to be working. Um, but like at some point, like that's just exhausting. So like in your career, you know, how did you how did you manage that um, being as productive as you are? What tips do you have for us? I managed it by trial and error. Right. And a little bit more error. So I'll, I'll tell you the mistakes I made and then what what I learned from them. So the first thing, which it goes back to an earlier part of the conversation, is you need good collaborators because there's going to come a day when you're just going to say, I just can't do it. And um, you're just not in a mental place where you can work. And then you need someone who's going to say, 
don't sweat it, Joshua or Russell or Ashley. I'm, I can I can do it this week, and I'll send you something in a week, and then you can look at it. You know, and you need someone like that. And I've been remarkably lucky with the colleagues I've had, um, and and I might just rattle off and probably ten of them. Um, where I've been just really lucky. And, and if they hadn't come through for me, I remember after I got tenure in the 90s, I had a hard tenure fight. And this is a true story. I had a real hard tenure fight and I was fed up with academics. And, um, and I just didn't do anything for like a year. And Howard Weiss called me and he said, Russell, I got this paper, I got this idea and, and I'm approved to write a paper on it and I could use some help. It's on something called affective events theory. And that's how I got in the affective events theory paper that Weiss and Crofton's on a 1996 paper. It was Howard trying to get me re-engaged after a, a hard time. And, and so that's the first thing. Pick your friends, um, pick your friends, be there for them, and they'll be there for you. The, the second thing I would say, and this is the, the more mercenary part, you have to invest in things with a payoff. Um, now, you, not, it's not always going to work out but you need to invest in things with a payoff. So where I would often get overworked is I would agree to write a chapter for someone who was a friend of mine when I didn't have time. Well, chapters aren't gonna do me much good, right? Nowadays, and yeah, 30 years ago was a different matter, but nowadays. And so you can't be writing those. Um, you need to be doing things that'll make you succeed at the place where you are or the place where you wanna be even better. And, um, and so cut off, projects that don't don't allow you to do that. And it's better to say no than to feel resentful. Uh, my, my old department head, when I was an assistant professor, told me it's like being an academic is like selling real estate. You don't know what you're going to sell and what you're not. But if you keep a portfolio of things going and do all the right things, some things are going to hit. So you focus on doing the right things, the kinds of things we're talking about. And then you just have faith that some of them are gonna fall. You're partitioning your time. And so, and so because of the way the academic and research schedule goes, you gotta work and you gotta work, right? The reviews come in and you have an, a, you have an um, R and R at A and J, you've gotta drop everything and get that paper done. Well, then what happens is you, you crash and you need to take time off after that time. And so, and so one of the reasons we end up working odd hours is because the academic schedule is not always under our control. The fact that I'm working on the 4th of July was because there was a deadline for a special issue that I need to, to hit. And, um, and so I took time off. I don't know if I was working more hours than anyone else, but, but my time off might be a Monday off, you know, or a Tuesday off, or I go ride my bike or something like that. So there is this sort of adjustment where you've got to teach yourself to accommodate your work relaxation schedule to the academic cycle. I think that's good advice. And I think it's something that you don't realize when you get into this career, but it's one of the luxuries of this career is you can make your own schedule and have the autonomy to choose when you want to work. Even though sometimes they may not be the days you want to do, it gives you freedom if you want to work a lot so you can have your Christmas off or your summers off. You kind of can make your schedule to be what you want. I can tell you what I do for work. I do something like... Um, like, so I'm going to take the day off. I'm going to go home and read. And I'll read something, not necessarily like journal articles, but something that's related to our field. Or I'll ride my bike. I like to ride my bike. Colorado's a good cycling place. And I'll listen to an audio book. 
And so that makes me feel like, well, I'm not really taking off. This is, of course, just blatant rationalization, but it works. And so I don't feel as bad when I do it. And that's good, right? It helps me exercise or take some downtime. I love that advice. I think that's super useful. Last question. Uh, we end every episode with this one. Um, looking back on your career so far and everything you've learned, what's one piece of advice you wish you had when you first started? Oh, that's that's a good question. I was well advised, which you've probably noticed. I had really, just really great people uh, advising me. That's a good question, though. I'll tell you, the I actually got this advice, but I wasn't able to do it. So I'll, I'll pretend it's advice I didn't get. You need, you need to be able to detach yourself from negative things um, at work. Um, and I don't mean disengage and close the door and be a hermit. I mean, emotionally distance yourself from them. Like, like if you're supporting a friend who's got a real serious problem, you want to be there for the friend and do everything you can, but you don't want to take on their problems so you become depressed. Because if you do that, that's bad for you. But more importantly, it's bad for the friend. And if I had to do it over again, Howard Weiss actually gave me this advice, but I wasn't able to pull it off. I think I just didn't understand it as a kid. There's always going to be politics. If there's 20 people or 50 people, learn how to accept the bad. Not, not condone it, but to distance yourself from it so you don't bring it home. And I know that was something that now I'm better at it, right? I've been doing it for 35 years. So even someone with this, even someone with this flat of a learning curve as me will eventually pick it up. But that was something I wish I had known. So I know I made life harder for my, my wife, for example, or my children, because I would just be really upset about things that happen at work and not able to let them go. And so, and so that sort of detachment, I think it's something you need to learn to cultivate. Thanks for being here, Russell. This was, this was really, really fun. Thanks so much, Ashley. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun for me and I hope, I hope you, you enjoyed it. We get some, you know, people get some. And Joshua, it was a real pleasure to meet you. This was amazing. I mean, this was so great. And um, I think the students are going to get so much out of this. You have a real passion for this and, um, and have had a lot of success in the area, but also you know, just working with people and this advice that you're giving um, is just really beneficial. So we want to say a big thank you to Russell for being here with us today. And a big thanks to all of you for listening to this month's episode. As usual, if you have any recommendations for future guests or any questions you'd like us to ask our guests, please be sure to send it to our email, which is t-m-i-e-n-t-p-o-d at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing and reading those when we get them. Until next time.